0: Agents Podcast. Welcome to the
1: LabCode Agents Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the LabCode Agents Marketing Center. The LCA Marketing Center is designed specifically for the real estate world. It's a design center for marketing that has templates created so you can just plug and play. From flyers, postcards, fire presentations, to open house signs, and Instagram posts. Check it out for free for seven days at LCAMarketingCenter.com. Hello, LCA Nation, and welcome to this week's episode of the Lab Code Agents Podcast. We are excited to share the conversation Nick and Tristan had with the author of the best selling book, Profit First. This conversation will change the way you look at business profitability and how you can create more wealth. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the Lab Code Agents podcast. I'm Nick Baldwin and I have Tristan Almada here with me as well. We have an awesome guest today. It's Mike Mikalowicz. I said it right, right? Awesome. Yep. Uh, Mike has written a book that, oh, man, hundreds if not thousands of real estate agents across the country are reading right now. It's called Profit First. He is an entrepreneur and lecturer, and he is the author of a bunch of other books, Clockwork, Surge, Profit First, like I mentioned, The Pumpkin Plan, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. He's also a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And he's the business rescue segment host for MSNBC's Your Business, and he hosted the reality television program called Bailout. And real popular
2: show, (laughs) really,
1: yeah. (laughs) That no one's heard of. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna binge it on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're super
2: excited to have Mike here. Thank you for being here, buddy, Nick Tristan. I appreciate you guys. Thank you for having me here.
1: Well, before we went live, we realized that both Mike and I are native new jerseyans so tristan Boom. felt a little out of place
0: yeah i'm from malibu so i feel really <laughs> sad you. nice are you trying to say that you're better than us no no no. i felt really sad oh yeah that's true well malibu is freaking off the hook it's amazing
1: reminiscing about you know the good old days in, in jersey um so mike thanks so much for being here uh i i, I just want to say how much we appreciate this book because Uh, Before we started recording, we were because we're real estate agents. We were talking about how there's a lot of talk around gross commission, and really, what it comes down to is gross commission doesn't mean anything. Like we hear agents throwing around all the time, "Oh, I grossed, uh," you know, my gross commission is a million bucks." But we're not talking enough about how much you're taking home. And this book is really changing the conversation. So we appreciate that. I love that. Yeah, no, we appreciate that. It's super. It's super important question. It's super important conversation to have. And I started reading this book with my wife. And so we're gonna go open our accounts and we'll talk about more about the five accounts later. But why do you think so many entrepreneurs are so afraid to pay themselves right off the bat? And they're like, I can't take money out of the business. I can't pay myself. I gotta live like scrounging for pennies. Why are they so afraid to
2: do this? Well, the, I think there's a lot of factors actually driving that. The, the first of all is the vernacular we use, meaning the words we use tells us that profit reward is not something that comes first. It's the last consideration. We call profit the bottom line or the year end, like all terms that don't worry about it now, we'll see what happens at the end. It's the last consideration. And it's human nature when something comes last, it means it's insignificant and can wait. Like I'd never say, oh, you know what? I've been sick for so long. I'm gonna far- start finally putting my health last <laughs> or, or you know, I love my family so much, that's why I put them last. You never say that. What comes first is the priority. What comes last is the you know perpetual manana syndrome. The second thing is there's this mentality of hustle and grind, and uh, I get the sentiment, but it's been bastardized so much. What we're we're being told, and you hear over and over again in the media, is you got to work harder, you got to push out. How bad do you want this? And the the goal is not hustle and grind. The goal is efficiency. It's fine. How do you drive more results by leveraging? the people and resources and tools around you. Actually, I'm more impressed by the people that kind of lazy their way out and say, how can I not work as hard today yet still get the same
0: results?
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh, you are speaking our language. Tristan, tell them about leverage is the new hustle.
0: Dude, so we have this saying called leverage is the new hustle. I love that. We hate people in our face, you know, all of the the people on YouTube and Instagram telling us, oh, you gotta hustle, you gotta do this. But the more we talk to these these amazing entrepreneurs, like the CEOs and executives of large companies, they're hustling, but they're actually leveraging a lot
2: more. So so what I found, so I wrote a book, Clockwork, devoted to figuring out organizational efficiency. And organizational efficiency can be achieved in organizations of one, because there's always resources around you. You have your vendors you work with. You have your clients themselves. Even they can be organized to move the ball forward. In the very beginning of a business, though, you need to hustle because you don't know what you don't know. There's a lot of learning going on. And so some, for some businesses, the first six months, and some maybe it's even the first six years, but there's a period of time where you do need to carry the business on your back. But if this becomes the modus operandi, you're screwed. Like if you think you're going to scale by working harder, you're simply going to exhaust yourself and the business will hit this limit. So we have to make this transition. I love it, the, the leverage, right? we got to make this transition where we're no longer trying to carry the ball. This is where we're handing off the ball. And we're directing. And we're no longer on the field. Now we're coaching and directing. And ultimately, we're this the owner of the franchise. That transition is difficult for many because we get into this routine of hustle and grind, hustle and grind. That routine becomes a rut. You know, that groove becomes a rut. We, we, we start believing this is the only way to grow. And that's the fallacy. And, and it's perpetuated by these people who are like, you got to hustle and grind, hustle and grind. Bullshit, well, man. Mike- Awesome. In, um, in
0: clockwork, I know we're talking about profit, but clockwork, uh, you, you mentioned these seven, the seven steps. Yeah. And the last one is breaking away from, from that dependency and making yourself yeah. uh, like a real entrepreneur, a CEO type stepping out a business, right? But uh, what do you think from what you've seen on businesses, what do you think is the most important step from those steps or the most difficult ones for entrepreneurs to implement?
2: Yeah, so in clockwork, it is a seven-step process. I found the most difficult is stage two, which is called the QBR, stands for Queen Uh B-Roll. And I'll explain what it is. There is a singular function in every business of every type that I studied. And I studied now thousands of business types from a very surface level to very deep inquisitions and found that every business has a singular function that's the most important function for the survivability and thrivability of the business. Mm -hmm. So, So this is how it works. The QBR was derived from beehives. I found that nature often has solutions for our business. Mm. And in a beehive, the most important function is the production of eggs. Because bees die very quickly, they need to spawn eggs. There's a singular bee called the queen bee that produces the eggs. The, the, the mistake, though, is thinking that the queen bee is the most important bee. That's not true. She's serving the most important function, which is egg production. But all the bees value the egg production. If the queen bee is failing to produce, she's actually killed or removed. <laughs> right? Don't do that to your employees. But, but the new queen bee is spawned. Here's the analogy uh, in business I think that we can relate to. I like to use FedEx as an example because it's a recognized brand. FedEx makes a promise to its customers. And we all make a promise to our customers. Sadly, many of us don't know what our promise is. So you have to declare this, but FedEx promises to deliver packages on time. Now, we also have to realize FedEx also has print shops. They do packaging. You know, they have all these different offerings that they have, but their primary, what they're known for is delivering packages on time. But we have to understand what we're known for in our business. Are we known for our ability to find inventory that's going to increase in value? I I worked with this guy uh, who's also a Keller Williams agent in Denver, and what he did was he it, figured out an algorithm to find homes that were increasing in value based upon the community. He had this whole metric, uh, this whole matrix he developed, mm-hmm. and he'd help customers really pinpoint a house that's going to increase in value the most rapidly compared to the others. So you know, what is the big promise we're making? Homes you know, to live comfortably, ones that fit your specific requirements, ones that will increase in value. Once we know our biggest promise, then we have to ask, what's the singular activity behind it that most delivers on that promise? So for FedEx, FedEx says we're going to deliver packages on time. The most important function is the logistics, the movement of packages. They have customer service and all these different things. And FedEx today could say, you know what? Screw logistics. Like, that's overrated. Let's just be customer service oriented. Let's be the friendliest company ever. What will happen within a week from today, I presume, is the news will break saying FedEx doesn't know where a single freaking package is, but they're super... (laughs) You know, they're super friendly about this. And now we're saying uh, you know, this billion-dollar company is, will be on the verge of going under because they're not delivering on their core competency. The, the irony is FedEx could do the reverse. FedEx could say, screw customer service. We're not anything that good at it anyway. Let's just close down the whole department. But, man, we're going to make sure every single package gets delivered on time. If we fast forward one week from today, the news will break saying you know, FedEx customer service blows, but packages are being uh, delivered on time every time. They won't go out of business. They'll simply cripple them slightly. That's the difference between the QBR, logistics for them, and all the other things. If you compromise the QBR, your business starts to collapse. If the other things are struggling, it slows you down a little bit. So the key is to elevate your QBR, crush it on your core competency, and simply be in the ballpark in other areas. And most agents I've worked with, most agencies... Most companies I worked with don't know their QBR and therefore they take two steps forward and three steps back in the business because they're constantly hitting on different things. We need to master that one core competency. And that, the that's QBR. what people
0: Okay. And does a QBR, while we're on this topic, I know we're gonna shift, but does the QBR ever change as as your business grows, or does it remain the same because like Kodak went out of business, Sony's like struggled a lot? what what, yeah. what do you what do you say?
2: The QBR does not change until your promise changes. For example, as an author, my promise is to make entrepreneurial topics simpler. Like I simplify entrepreneurial strategies. My uh, QBR is to write books that do that. As long as my promise is to simplify strategies, I'm going to keep on writing these books that do that. But one day I may declare a new promise. I, I don't even can't imagine what it is. Maybe. To, to establish the most, the strongest community of entrepreneurs, a gathering point. Well, now writing books may not be the solution to that. Now maybe it's setting up some kind of forum of some sort, but only when we change our promise, do we change the QBR, the function behind
0: it. Dude. I love that. So By the way, gra-
2: do you see, if you can see the video, gratitude dude. As well. yeah, yeah. If you're watching this on YouTube, I love Mike's For those of shirt. you that can't see it. I want that shirt, Mike, the
0: gratitude dude. Yeah, Mike says great. It says grateful dude. Sorry, grateful, on grateful it dude. dude. Yeah.
2: Oh, great. Not gratitude. Yeah. Grateful dude. Grateful dude. Grateful dude. Yeah. 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 It's grateful dead, grateful That's dude. Let's get grateful dead. Yeah. I need that shirt.
1: You send us that and we'll send you a leverage as the new hustle shirt. <laughs> All
2: right. That's, a deal. That's, That's a deal. so funny.
1: Um, so, so let's just get, I want to get down into profit first, right? So, I mean, I'm reading this book and my wife and I are masterminding in the car on a long road trip. And I think it was like the perfect opportunity for us to do that. Right. And I'm, and I'm explaining to her these, these five foundational accounts that can allow us to essentially, you know, build more wealth for ourselves. I like how you break it down and you make it relatable, right? If you're put, put, it's 10% putting 10% away or 1%, 1%. Good
2: question. So it depends.
1: Okay. But I like how you make it simple and it's not necessarily putting a large sum of money away, right? It's just paying yourself a little bit. Let's talk about the five foundational accounts that play into profit first, income, profit, owner's comp tax, OPEX. Before you answer that question, because Tristan and I are independent contractors and we're realtors. Now, you say in the book that those accounts all have to be the same, but if we run a non traditional business, can we play around with some of them a little bit?
2: Yeah, there is room for play, but there are five foundational accounts. So let me rewind even one step further to explain why they exist. What I found in working with all types of businesses, from freelance to non traditional businesses to the C Corps of the world, These companies, many revert to what's called bank balance accounting. So even though we have an accounting system or spreadsheets tracking our numbers, many of us will log into our bank account, see what our balance is, and based upon what we see there, we take action. That's called bank balance accounting. I I do it. Uh, I I log in my bank account and see how much money I have. Well, the problem is if the money is in a single bank account, we will default to say, well, I have, say, there's $10,000 in there. Oh, I got $10,000. What am I going to do with my $10,000? And we go to the most apparent thing. Oh, I got to pay bills or I want to spend it here. What we need to do is set up effectively the envelope system, a traditional system from decades past, but an envelope system and apply it to our banks. So there's five foundational accounts I suggest, and this is how they work. The first account called income. So starting today at your bank, you have a checking account called income. It's a depository-only account, meaning money comes into this account, you don't pay a single bill from there it just collects money we're then going to carve that money up and allocate it to the other accounts so the remaining four are profit profit is an allocation of money for being a shareholder in a business meaning if if you own a business uh, you've taken on extraordinary risk you've done which what 93 percent of the world population will never do and ultimately as you grow your business you'll be even offering employment to other people you've done something pretty miraculous you're a shareholder so that money in the profit account is a reward for taking on the risk of starting or investing in a business. The next account is called owner's comp. That's the third account. Owner's comp is your normalized salary. So a slice of that money goes in there and this is what you live your lifestyle off of. The funny thing is with business owners and entrepreneurs, inevitably, any penny we can scratch out of our business, we live our lifestyle up to that level. And it becomes real dangerous because we have a good windfall of cash. Now it's like, whoa, I'm living large and our lifestyle ramps up. But then the next month, the money starts dwindling again. And now we have a new standard for our lifestyle and panic ensues, can't afford it anymore. So the owner's comp account is a way to have a normalized kind of salary coming to us. And it will grow over time, but it will give us a normalized expectation. The third, I'm sorry, the fourth account is called tax. You know, when we start our business, hopefully we started because we're passionate about the work we do. I hope we also started it for financial freedom. And definition of financial freedom is not worrying about bills. And the biggest bill people worry about is actually the tax bill at the end of every year, the end of every quarter. So this tax account, the business is going to reserve your tax liabilities on your behalf and address it on your behalf. The final account is called OPEX, stands for operating expenses. And the OPEX account simply collects the remaining percentage and that's what's truly available to operate your business. The final point says if 10,000 bucks comes in, You don't have ten thousand dollars to operate your business. After you carve it up, you may realize, oh, I only have two thousand dollars (laughs) or a thousand dollars,
0: and that's kind of the awakening.
2: Yeah. Well,
1: I I like I like the way you explain it in the book because it's like um, it's like everybody's grandmother had (laughs) had envelopes where you know, and and my wife's grandmother, she's like ninety five years old. You know, she's she's from Italy. Uh, She's been here for eighty five years, and it sounds like she literally just got here, but she has these envelopes, and in every envelope is something different, yes. uh, you know, for groceries or whatever the case may be. And so I like that because it's essentially like a more advanced version of that. You know, like our... our
2: Yeah. Is a, we're doing this for implement. I love that. I'd say it's a simply a modernized version of it. It's, it's identical system. So my mother is from Europe, too. Same thing. She would... Uh, she worked at a local uh, plant here, and she would... To cash in her checks. She worked part time, and then divide the money up. And one was the food envelope. One was for the mortgage. When she went food shopping, you just grab the food envelope. You drive to the food store, and the interesting lesson is you always have enough money, which does not mean you have the same amount of money. That's different. You have enough meaning whatever's in there. You work with it. So sometimes it was you know rice and beans. Other times it was a, a better meal. We'll say, um, but she worked with whatever money was in the envelope. This is the identical idea for our business. We're going to modernize this by carving the money up with bank accounts, but they're acting like envelopes. When you look at that OPEX account, that's your food money. You must operate the business here. And we were saying in our office here, if you can't afford your bills from the OPEX, that's your business telling you, you can't, I mean, sorry, if you can't pay your bills, you can't afford your bills. There's something fundamentally flawed in your business that we need to fix. In the past, we just took all that money, the 10,000 bucks, and we, we we leveraged it in our business any way we could. We used every penny of it. But now you realize you only have 1,000 or 2,000, wherever the number is for you, you must work within the confines of that. That's your envelope for your business.
0: That makes sense, man. So, one way that you simplified it's super easy for me. And what is that towards the beginning of the book where, where you said sales minus profit equals expenses? Yeah. Right? That, that's where, it, where, it, where then it, it started the rest of everything. Can you explain what that means to, to the audience? Because uh, it's so simple, but it's complicated.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So Profit First is a behavioral cash management system. People think it's an accounting system. It's not. It actually works with any form of accounting. It's a cash management system. And it's based on behavioral psychology. So if you're watching the video up here on my top shelf, those are all books about behavioral psychology. That's my little side passion. And I'm just really curious about how our mind works and sometimes how There's a book called Predictably Irrational. That's a great way to define how predictably irrational we are. But we can channel that predictability and drive the results. In the traditional formula, we are told sales minus expenses equals profit. That is an established formula. It's taught in thousands of accounting books. It's taught at every high school and college level accounting course. Uh, Your friends tell you that too. And it's in the vernacular, bottom line, year end. The problem with this formula is it's human nature to focus on what comes first. So almost every business owner focuses on sales and expenses. And what we like to say is we're focusing on sales and growth because expenses is kind of a gross word. So most business owners will say, "I need to sell more." So the first thing that comes, sell, 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 and I need to put this money back in the business to grow, 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 sell, grow, sell, grow. But they're really just selling to cover expenses. And now you have a, a, a agent that is making transactions hundreds of thousands, millions and millions of dollars of transactions, and as the numbers are getting bigger, they're actually under more stress, more duress. The reason is revenue translates directly to stress, because revenue is obligation. Every time you sell a property uh, and you have more revenue coming in, you have more work you're responsible to deliver on, right? That's what sales are. Sales translates to obligation and stress. The balance to this is profit, which in the old formula is the bottom line, so it gets ignored, What I did in the book is I simply flipped the formula. I said the two most important things are sales. You have to have sales, inbound cash flow, and then immediately take your profit. That's the balance to this. So it's sales minus profit equals expenses. We take our profit first. We hide it away in those bank accounts, hide it so it's out of sight, out of mind. And then our business tells us what we truly have available left to operate our practice.
0: Well, I love the psychology behind that too, because we, like you said, we've been taught for so many years years from our families and our environment to to pay everything else first right right? and the psychology behind paying yourself first actually actually makes you feel good and i know you mentioned that in the book it's like but that feeling goes such a long way right it makes you love your business more and can you explain where you got that because i didn't think about that before
1: well hold on before you answer that question it reminds me of something i thought of today right we're all talking and I, and I actually, it's a post I made in Lab Code Agents. Uh, we're all talking about, don't you want to make more money? Don't you want to make more money? Yes, but I also want to be passionate about what I do, and I want to yeah. be happy, and I want to have a nice balance. So I think a lot of that comes, should come way first.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there's a difference between make money and take money. And I think there's a lot of confusion around that. Yeah. A lot of people I know focus on making more, but they're not taking more. And it falls back into that trap of actually, as you make more, there's more responsibility placed upon you, and it's actually more stressful. So, yeah. profit first is about taking more, but to a degree. Now, let me say this too. I, I've been in the position I wiped. It. The reason I wrote profit first is I had some businesses and I wiped myself out financially. I mean, it was a calamity. I almost destroyed my family because of this, and it was the the wake up moment that I needed. It was the financial cardiac arrest, and so I've experienced being. Totally broke, not being able to afford ramen's noodles, even, and uh, having you know, significant wealth on their side. I've experienced both. And I will tell you, it is happier for my experience to have money than it is to have no money. So, money does facilitate happiness to a certain degree because it amplifies our ability to do things. It makes things more accessible. So, money, I think, from my experience, is a great tool for happiness, but it is definitely not the root or cause of happiness. So, yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah, so. That was it. So, but, dude, in, in
0: that sense, uh, for those of you who are just listening to this, because we're also recording this, uh, Mike's in great shape, and I, this book, <laughs> this book doesn't talk about. You
2: mean, like physically? Oh, those physically. guns, baby, the gun show, bro. <laughs> totally outgunned our show. <laughs>
0: so, um, he's in great shape, and, and we're talking about profit first. And you mentioned at the very beginning, you know, what about health first? What about family first? Love you did it. that in passing, and. Yeah. I would imagine you'd probably write a book health first, but what, how how do you fit the whole balance? The, uh, what what people call, well, you know, balance is just, it's, it's a myth. How do you fit that into this whole world?
2: Yeah. So, uh, there's a misperception around profit first. So when people hear the title, like this guy's greedy, is he like the greed is good guy. (laughs) And, And, uh, no, no, I simply am challenging the formula that profit comes last. I'm not saying profit, uh, precedes everything else, including your health or your family. There it has to be balance. But there is a common theme, for at least for me, that makes profitability work and health work and family work. And it's putting these behavioral intercepts in place. What's a behavioral intercept? When we look at a natural pattern we have in our lives, instead of trying to change our habits, which is very hard, is instead to put something that intercepts that behavior and channels us the outcome we want. So profit first I'm saying is if you log into your bank account to see what your balance is, keep doing that behavior. You know, traditional accounting says never look at your bank accounts. That's not representative of your business. You need to read your cash flow statements and your income statement. But I'm saying, no, no, go into your bank account because that's what you do. We just need to set up and intercept these bank accounts that divide the money up before you spend a penny, you'll know what you'll do. When it comes to health, like I just went running today. I I actually people say, Oh, you like to work out? No, I actually don't. I like <laughs> the feeling, I like the feeling afterwards a lot but I, I don't like doing it so i have to set these behavioral intercepts i, I when i wake up in the morning i walk to the bathroom I to use the bathroom so what do i do i put my sneakers right there i actually trip over them sometimes it frustrates my wife mm-hmm. but i have no excuse because my sneakers are there and it's like okay just put the sneakers on <laughs> and once the sneakers are on it's like okay let's just get this done i'll feel grateful after. <laughs> and i do it and uh, same thing with my family like i i used to brag, and I'm, I'm actually ashamed about this now. I used to brag that I was a workaholic. I could keep driving things forward, which simply meant I didn't understand the value of productivity and seeing results. I thought that the grind and hustle was a smart thing, and I'm ashamed of that. Uh, and I was ignoring my family. I wasn't present for them. I was missing dinners and dinners for years. Well, what I did was I set up a behavioral intercept. What I did was I set up a chiropractic appointment People say, why do you go to a chiropractor? Do you have a bad back? The answer is, no, I don't, because I don't want to get a bad back. So I go to the chiropractor to prevent it. And uh, I set it up for five o'clock. So I, ha- I have to leave here at five o'clock. The work is done. I get my back cracked and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm done for the day and I'm home. So I set these natural intercepts with my behavior because I-, I am my own worst enemy and I wouldn't do that otherwise.
0: Have you ever read the scholarly book called um, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie? No. <laughs> It's it's actually a kid's book. Oh. Uh, and what it is, is if you give a mouse a cookie, it starts a whole process. He then wants milk. And then from oh, milk, that's cool. right? And then and then you have to end up, he, he ends up going to school with you and playing with oh, you. Oh, that's
2: so funny. That's right? so funny.
0: And so that just reminded me of what you said. If you put your shoes in front of you in the morning, right? It starts a process. So, dude, I, I love that you do that. These are little hacks that you do. Yeah, they're and little hacks. Literally. From from reading your bio and, and some stuff on the internet, I noticed that you're always trying to figure out how to create systems and processes to kind of hack life your way.
2: Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Like, I, I'm pretty clear on the outcomes I want and the impact I want to have. And actually, I, here's what I would argue is probably the greatest hack of all <clears throat> is... Um, you can see in the video, I wear these little bracelets, which it looks like I want to be a teenager still, which is actually the truth.
0: Uh, <laughs> I love that. You know we I kind of do. I, I wish, wish I was a girl, if you know what that is.
2: I wish I was. But on here, what you can't see are sayings and they speak to my life's purpose. I think this was the biggest thing for me to achieve the outcomes that I have so far. And I think the biggest thing for all of us, I believe we all have a life's purpose. And I don't know if it's God given or self given. Like, I think that's our choice. And I don't think there's a, better purpose or worse purpose. My purpose is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. But here's what I do know. For me, it tied back to my financial trauma. I went through this cardiac arrest financially, and it awoken me to something that I got to fix this honestly for myself. But as I fix it for myself, I can fix it for others too. And so I'm constantly reminded by this. And this is like a magnet pulls me forward. But I I met another guy recently, he was a, a gentleman who read one of my books. And I, we were talking about purpose. I said, "What's your purpose?" And he he said, "I'm ashamed to say this, but he's like, I, my purpose is to put food on the table." I said, "Why are you ashamed of that?" He's like, "Because it's so small." I'm like, "That's so freaking big." Ends up, his wife had passed away a year prior. He was a single father, and uh, he wanted to put food on the table. One year later, so I met him year, again recently, but I met him a year later after he's declaring that he has started a charity about putting food on the table he realized that that for a single parent that dinner time was such an impactful moment that was the reconnection of family that he started this charity that just helps single parents have dinner together it's like a food service almost effectively for single parents and i'm like i don't know that purpose is amazing but so was the first purpose whatever we feel called to in the moment that drives us that's purpose and i think that's a tool to be leveraged
1: Hey, you know, we were talking just about health, right? And so that kind of brings me to page 38 in the book. See, Tristan, I know exactly what page things are on. That's, that's, <laughs> the
2: yeah, oh, both you guys.
1: Like, oh, you're all tabbed up. Tristan has tabs. I love his tabs. Nice. Because you compare, you say that the diet and health industry actually know a lot about running a business. Yeah. Uh, because that's where the four core principles, you compare the four core, core principles of Profit First yeah. to the American diet and how yeah. a research was conducted years ago, how the the, the plate size has grown, yes. the percentage in which people typically eat has yep. grown over the course of the last yep. some 100 years or so. Let's just talk a little bit about comparing those principles of Profit First to, to that analogy.
2: Sure, sure. Here's what's fascinating is uh, humans haven't changed, right? So when we look at our society, this is true globally now. Uh, there, there's an epidemic with weight. And uh, the, the saying is like, well, what's wrong with people? What's changing with us? Nothing. We're the same people. Here's the problem. The, 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 the containers we're using have changed. And again, this is a behavioral intercept, but this is a behavioral intercept gone the wrong way. So 300 years ago, George Washington and his buds we're eating off of what we would consider like dessert plates or coffee saucers. And the behavior then was the same as it is today. Fill up your plate. And their mom said, you know, clean off your plate. Fast forward a mere 300 years, plates have more than doubled in size. Well, what happens? Our portions double in size because our behavior is fill up the plate. As our moms say, clean off the plate. Portions have doubled in size, caloric intake, and therefore our waistlines as a society. So the funny thing is the solution that these fitness experts that I was studying said is don't worry about what you're eating. Worry about the plates you use at home. Just get smaller plates. And um, I got two teenage boys. Well, one of them is no longer a teenager, but two teenage boys. I don't call them teenage boys. I call them creatures because <laughs> the amount of food consumption is freaking redonkulous. Like <laughs> we go through a box of Cheerios every hour, you know? So I tried an experiment around this and,
1: Cheerios are healthy, though. We're not eating that. Yeah,
2: cheers are healthy. But no, but the they, just constantly shoveling it in. But but the reason was they would take these bowls, they fill up these bowls, like heaving servings, overflowing. They'd reassemble this Cheerios like as a Jenga tower and they're eating it. <laughs> I would uh, what I did is I got slow, smaller bowls. And it took me about four iterations over six months, but I kept on reducing it, and the kids never noticed. But then we were eating, uh, going through a box of Cheerios like in 3 or 4 days which if you teenage boys is a miracle our consumption reduced the the containers dictate our consumption so it's really container control not not appetite control appetite suppression or any of that stuff it's about container control that's one of the core functions and what i teach when it comes to financials is if we have that one bank account at your business that's the entire plate big plate with the entire serving and so our business naturally and our behavior will be oh we can consume all that what we're going to do is carve it up into these smaller plates, the envelope system so that we have these controlled portions in front of us and we'll behave much more responsibly. That's one of the core principles. Dude. Yeah, it's love, it's
1: love a great, problem. it's a great, it's a great analogy. It's a great analogy.
0: Yeah. Uh, Mike, I, I have a question here and this, this is much more into the book deeper into it, but we can apply it to, to just businesses in general. And that was when you asked a question, how do you get two times the results with half the effort? Oh, yeah. But I feel like you, you're you probably going to ask that in your other books too, because you're always yeah. trying to hack things, right? So how can we apply that here? I know, you, give us like a, a, a quick synopsis of that.
2: Yeah, so here's the idea is that questions dictate outcomes. It's not actions, it's actually questions that dictate outcomes because questions dictate actions that bring about outcomes. So most of us think it's just like, I need to do, I need to work harder. so something get results. And my challenge to people is, no, no, you have to ask a different, perhaps better question. One of my favorite questions was, uh, I was speaking with an electrical contractor. The guy's name is Mike Aglario. And 25 or 20 years ago, he started his electrical contracting business, had a, uh, a single van and would do his work. He sold his company last year for $32 million, had 150 employees. Uh, all this stuff. And I said, how did you grow a business like that? How hard do most of you work? And he said, no, no, I didn't work any harder. He goes, I just asked a different, better question. Instead of asking, how am I going to get today's work done? That was his question. He'd start today and say, how am I going to get this all done? And then he go into scheduling and, and, you know, so forth and maybe I can skip lunch. He started to ask a new question and it was the only thing, the only change he made, he started asking who is going to do the work today? Instead, said, how am I going to get this work done? Who is going to get the work done? And by asking that, his mind starts saying, okay, I need to start bringing on people or have a, uh, you know, a nephew or something do some of the administrative work. And it wasn't like overnight the business changed in, in its growth. Overnight his mentality changed and the business started to replicate it. It was a few years of doing that and the business had started this explosive growth. Dude, you know what I found
0: when I asked myself that question after reading that, I thought, well... I think what happens is my processes aren't clear enough for the people that I'm giving the processes mm. to. Mm.
2: So, so there's an opportunity.
0: Yeah, and I'm like, let's try that. And as soon as I clarified exactly step-by-step the process, then all of a sudden I left that out of the equation. It's like, okay, it's just a process. Let's just do it that way. Yeah. And all of a sudden it started working better. I'm like, whoa, that was, that's a great question. Yeah. So I remembered to ask you that because that was brilliant, dude.
2: Yeah, thank you, thank you. And so uh, I, I challenge people this this, this regularly. And, and the resistance happens instantly. So I, I want people to ask absurd questions. I, I remember I was working with, and I think I put in the book, um, a company that plows uh, parking lots in, in New Jersey. Nick, you know the New Jersey uh, winters we have up here. And,
1: yeah, well, I'm in, I'm in Michigan now, so. I oh, see, yeah,
2: you, I, you went from bad to worse. <laughs> I
1: know.
2: But I saw this guy and, and the constant, the questions were always around, how do I get a little bit faster? So say planning a parking lot took an hour. They were saying like, how do we get this done in 50 minutes? So we can get to the next job a little faster. And I said, no, let's ask a bold question. How do we do twice the work mean do two parking lots in half the time? So instead of saying, how do we do one parking lot and in, in 50 minutes, seven hours, I'm saying, how do we do two parking lots in 30 minutes? And that's where the first response is like, that's impossible. I can't do that. And, um, That's where we started challenging the standard notions, because the standard notion is to do a parking lot a little bit faster, maybe you can drive the truck a little faster, maybe you can get a slightly bigger plow. But when you started to ask this other question, you have to start thinking outside the box. We talked about, what about heated parking lots? What if they weren't plowing the parking lots? What if they're installing coil systems in parking lots so they never need to be plowed at all in the first place? Now that's extremely efficient. Is there an opportunity there? Uh, we talked about robotic plowing, which actually exists. Can we have a drone type car or vehicle do some of the plowing? Oh, you know, we also just looked at the shoveling. Uh, it's interesting, the 80-20 rule, uh, 20% of the effort is the actual plowing of the lot. It's the detail shoveling around that takes 80% of the time, yet only gives a small result. How do we get that stuff outsourced and done? And, and can we do a collaborative around that or, or not do that service? Forced us to start thinking at this problem in a whole new way. That's why I want to challenge people to ask radical questions. I'm not saying you're going to find a radical answer every time, but you'll start thinking outside the box. And that's how you outpace the industry.
1: Hey, Mike. So uh, we got something else in common, by the way. Uh, page 140 of your book, you talk about Wesley Broca. And, oh, yeah. And he's actually uh, he's actually a friend of ours, Tristan. Oh, really?
2: Yeah. yeah and, and he
1: helps us. Uh, he's been giving us some, you know, some business advice and he's helped us with some projects and, you know, we're going to be working cool. more closely with him on a couple other things, but we were reading the book. We're like, Oh crap,
0: it's Wesley. Oh, that was hilarious. Yeah,
2: so, that's you know, funny.
1: I like, I, and, and, and a lot of the times, Tristan and I talk about leverages in muscle. So Wesley, the founder of Lingu Systems, um, which was uh, a marketing services company you You mention here i mean that's obviously it's it's a it's a testimonial for how the how profit for how the profit first system yeah. works right, but you love that he you know he we, we didn't love that he was not profitable, obviously, but <laughs> instead of saying like you know we got to pour in more money he's like let's think of something else let's think of another way and it seems like he started streamlining his his business and he started eliminating things that didn't work, and he started leveraging things that did to make things easier for him so he could make more money and kind of do a little bit less. And that's, that's kind of what connected us uh, with Wesley because we had the same mindset, but I love that he is a case study in your book. Can you just talk a little bit about Wesley to our, to our listeners, you know, in case they're not super familiar with him?
2: Yeah. So uh, I vaguely remember the story. I, cause I'm right now, I'm knee deep in writing my newest book and it's yeah. about 15 new stories. So I'm like, ah, so basically the approach that I recall Wesley did was uh, cost reduction. So there's basically two ways to increase profitability. One is once you set your profit goal and how we do in the profit first system and Wesley did too, is you, you take a predetermined percentage of all your income and allocate it toward profit. If there's not enough money left to pay your bills at the end of the day, can't afford your bills, that's your business speaking to you and we need to adjust. And there's only two ways to adjust. One is through cost reduction. And what was interesting about his stories or, as I remember this is it was actually kind of easy to, to kind of go on this cost thrashing expedition. Like it was kind of easy. And I think most businesses could cut 10% costs today. Like, like if if you had like a, a health scare and you have to see a, 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 a heart surgeon and the heart surgeon says, you know, we're going to charge you $10,000. I suspect you'll find a way to string together $10,000 if you don't have it. We, we find ways when it's necessitated. And that's what one lesson I got from Wesley was, all right, this is what I have to live with under, let me start cutting costs. And there's, there's a lot of, Subscription costs like that we subscribe to and we don't use. Uh, office space that we use to impress someone and it really doesn't impress them. The really expensive car that'll impress the customer that really actually does not impress the customer. So we started to look at that. The other area is is through margin. And I don't, if I recall Wesley's story correctly, we didn't really explore the margin side, but the margin is how do you dictate more for the work you do? One, one thing that was fascinating with a real estate agent specifically, so here's a tip I was working with uh, her name is Jane. I'm not going to give her your last name just for privacy, but she's a Keller Williams rep, ironically. And uh, Jane was looking to, to dictate a higher premium, be able to sell higher dollar value houses, mm-hmm. and to for her to be perceived as a higher value agent. Well, one thing she realized is with her ideal customer base is a lot of the people were not just assessing the house, they're assessing the community. Well, she changed the way they did open houses. So she would have it, she called it the open community. And what you do is it'd be an open house, but the fire chief would be there for a few hours, the police chief, the school principal. She had all of the community influencers there. And now when you come visit the house, you get to understand the community. Well, her value skyrocketed. So that's- that's amazing. Pretty cool, right? So that's that's the idea of increasing margin, meaning doing something that differentiates you from the standard fare that (laughs) people will gladly pay a premium for. Everyone wanted Jane to represent them. So that's how you do it.
1: That is-
0: brilliant tristan right I mean, i'm already my mind's already thinking of, of what we can do here in malibu when we have these oh uh, 20 million 30 million homes That's uh now all of a sudden you bring part of that community in uh, mm-hmm. on one night oh my god to have the mayor and the chief of police or the chief of, of fire department come in and speak that's dude Incredible. You that's get the president
2: be- of Pepperdine waving from the oh, hill up fine. top. Oh, like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> from above. Yeah, that's, that's our university, the most beautiful campus ever, <laughs> which, which it is, by the way, if you've ever been true. there. That's true. Yeah. Oh, that, That's That's
0: the dean surfing in. Oh, check him out. Hello. <laughs> I mean, cute. dude,
1: Tristan With I mean, because Tristan will take big million, multi-million dollar listings. I mean, can you imagine having, you know, the mayor of Malibu at one of the listings dude. for an open house? I uh, never yeah. thought of how that. How are you?
2: Yeah, it's a game changer, right? It's a game changer. But the funny thing is, it goes back to those questions. Most of us say, how do I get more people as open house? Jane, Jane's question was, how do I change the, the whole paradigm of open houses? How do I no longer do open houses? And that's where she came up with this idea of the open community. Like, so we just gotta ask better questions.
0: Mike, are we, are we good on time? It, um, we're about- yeah, yeah, a few more minutes. Yeah, a few more yeah. minutes. I do got
2: split have... around four. Michael. Yeah, we got, we got six minutes. Perfect. <laughs> Thank <as> you for <laughs> asking.
0: I have a question then, and this is important to real estate agents specifically. the The question that comes up in in our group is, well, I, I'm not sure when to hire an assistant. Right, Oh, I know when, and I know you know. <laughs> that's what I'm asking. Like, we hope you do
1: because if you don't know the answer, then we're just stuck.
2: Yeah, yeah. Then the whole the whole show you're just canceling the show. Well, imagine, no. my, imagine, Mike goes, I have no idea. I, have no idea. Right. Next. I know. Next, so uh, I know now. I didn't know then. You need to hire a personal assistant yesterday, and. Uh, I cannot purport the value highly enough. I mean, a personal assistant can take away all those personal responsibilities you have that are low value, but important. They need to get done, but they're low impact. And as an agent, as a business owner, there are certain things you do that are high impact. It's, it's the selling, the showing. You know, I, I don't know the space that well, but it's those elements. But the administrivia uh, is of low value, but needs to be done. It's, the, it's even taking care of your own personal effects. If you, if you make $100,000 a year, whatever dollar amount you make, divide it by 2,000, because 2,000 is the standardized work hours per year. So mm-hmm. if I made $100,000 a year, I divide by 2,000, that's $50 an hour. If I go get myself a cup of coffee right now, it's, it's just a cup of coffee, it takes 15 minutes, 10, 10 minutes, what's the big deal? Well, I got to realize that cup of coffee that cost me $6 did not cost $6. It's $50 an hour. So that's five extra dollars. So it didn't cost me $6. It cost me $11 of my time, you know, and the the item I purchased. Oh, wow. So even these little minuscule tasks, you got to realize the amount of money you're saving and it's freeing up the time to focus on the big tasks. The opportunity cost. Got the it. opportunity cost. It's massive and we don't count for it. It's like, oh, I can handle email. It's just an hour of my day. Oh, I can do this. And we're spending like six hours five hours a day in the administrivia that's hundreds and hundreds of costs dollars that we're losing and the impact we're losing so so check this out
1: that's a great i want to just mention one thing about uh ben kinney he's the number one agent in keller williams in the entire company
2: yeah like 15 personal assistants
1: no well well so this is a story that i heard and if ben's listening if this isn't true feel free to let me know but it's a story that i heard but it sounds like it might be accurate if you know Ben. Uh, so Ben's Ben's he's got multiple expansion teams. Uh, his his gross commission was uh, around eighteen million for all of his expansion teams. I think Ben himself personally net about thirty two percent of that last year, which is pretty ph- phenomenal. Not
2: too shabby. Not too what
1: shabby. I heard was that Ben has his assistant go put gas in his car because he calculated that that takes fifteen minutes. Yeah. And I just calc- I just calculated eighteen million divided by two thousand. That's nine thousand dollars an hour. You know what I mean? So ben, so that fifteen minutes to Ben is so imperative. He cannot lose that fifteen minutes. And so having his assistant go, go fill up his gas tank and come back. I mean, that's that's up. to the extreme, I think. But it's a good example. Of, he just a house needs a Tesla. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, right, right. Well, that's true. Maybe he has right. a Tesla now, and that assistant's out of a job.
2: But, you know, and some people, some people say, well, that's petty. It's only 15 minutes. You don't need to do that. But you got to understand that it also sets a mentality in, in one instance, meaning if I fill my gas twice, my tank twice a week and cost 15 minutes, I can very easily justify saying, listen, now I have 15 minutes to breathe and just chill for a second. I'm not going to work all that time. But it, it also sets the mentality that that stuff's acceptable. And it starts this downward spiral. You know, I'll mow my own lawn. I'll do all these different things. And that's st- the cumulative effect is very damaging. Yeah. What I love about that story is the mindset. He's like, I'm not going to stand for it. And it doesn't mean Ben is working his tail off every single second. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure he isn't, but it simply means that he values his time more than filling up gas. And I love that mentality.
0: Mike, Mike, what are you working on right now as a book? Uh, yeah, if you super can share it, If you can share it, if not. Uh, we'll yeah, yeah, yeah I
2: can share it. So right. uh, I just, I turned it into third pass manuscript to my publisher, this uh, two days ago. So the book's called Fix This Next. And the thesis is this, the biggest challenge facing business owners is they don't know what their biggest challenge is. There's this ambiguity. There's this rush to do all the apparent problems. I got the hundreds of thousands of things, but they don't consider what's the one impactful thing. Kind of like uh, Gary's one thing. But the question that I'm trying to address is how do you find that one thing? So I based upon, I studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs, behavioral based, but basically every business I found, there's a hierarchy or sequence. Every business goes through. We share a common DNA and it's a method to pinpoint what you should be working on right now.
1: Two more questions. Then I know you got to wrap it up first. uh, My father is a, is an author too. And he's published about a dozen books. And that's awesome. I always, yeah, I always wonder like how he comes up with his idea. So like, you know, you write a lot of books that are non-traditional business books and I really admire that. So how do you, wh- where does where does that come from? Where do you get that next idea? You know, profit first and then fix this next. Where does it, where does that come from?
2: So two sources. One is I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I currently am a shareholder in three small businesses and I have, have presidents for each one, but I'm actively involved in the businesses. So that's part of it. Like my own experiences and I'm trying to fix my own challenges. Every book I've written It's a problem I'm facing in my own life or business I'm trying to fix. The second thing is I've been blessed now. I have a pretty sizable readership. So I get emails in. Actually, every couple of minutes, we'll get an email now. And in there, people sometimes reveal their biggest challenge. So I just look for that common thread. And the most common thread was interesting. People were saying, Mike, I don't know what book I should read of yours. What should I read next? And I said, well, why you ask me? Because I don't know what to do. And that's when it became very clear. People don't know what to focus on. Uh, it's just, it's just, they're trying to get direction from someone that's arbitrary. Oh, read Clockwork. It's my favorite book right now. That, that, <laughs> that's not it. it. It's, it's, what's the challenge you have. And right. once we pinpoint the challenge, then we should go for the resources.
1: Awesome. I love that. And before you go, obviously everyone wants to know, or they had not tell us, but I'm sure they will once they get end of this. What book other than The Prophet First and Clockwork, what book do you recommend? What's wow. your favorite book right now that you're
2: reading? You're kind of trapping me here because I got to say, it depends what your challenge is, right? Oh, so,
0: yeah. Well, okay. Um, what's your new favorite book that, that you think? Book? Wow. I, I love this book right now for me, for you. Um,
2: you know, we're, we're, we're doing a book study in-house. It's Joey Coleman's book, Never Lose a Customer or Never Lose a Customer Again. I may have met, messed up that title, but mm. it was just interesting. It's about client retention. Mm. And uh, by Joey Coleman, it's a Penguin published book. It's really good.
1: Okay, I have a, I have a, okay, let's say there's a there's a someone who wants to scale their business, whether it be a small mom and pop or a realtor and they want to scale and they want to grow, what would be the best book for them to read to get information on that?
2: Yeah, so the book I wrote about that is Clockwork because Oh, okay. So e, but if you want to read something outside of my books, Emyth is a great book. If, oh yeah. Emyth is the concept of don't work in the business work on a business. Clockwork is how do you throttle through? It. It's not a switch like it's not like one day miraculously you'll be working on the business. It's how do you throttle over? So mm-hmm. Emith would be the the book I'd suggest and if you want to read one of my books Clockwork would be
1: there. Yeah, for sure. Hey Mike, if anyone wants to reach out to you or where can they find
2: you? Oh, well I'd be honored. Uh, it's at mikemcallowitz.com, but I know my last name is impossible to pronounce and even harder to spell. <laughs> so I have a shortcut. It's mike motorbike. Oh. Uh, yeah, Ooh. my nickname, my nickname in high school is Mike Motorbike. I've never driven a motorcycle. I have no aspiration to, but If you go to MikeMotorBike.com, it forwards you to my website. All my books, chapter downloads are free, so you can check it out. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. My TV show that failed, Bailout, is up there. You can check it out. And I'm also a podcaster and blogger. It's all there for free.
1: That's amazing. And listen, everybody, if you're listening to this and you're on you're on Spotify, you're on iTunes, you're on Google Play, and there's a button to subscribe or download, please click that button and also leave a review and tell us how awesome Mike was and you know give us some takeaways and what you learned. Mike, we appreciate your time. You know you're a busy man writing a lot of books and talking to a lot of important people. So we're glad that you talked to us.
2: I appreciate and, it, gentlemen. Thank uh,
1: you. Uh, next time I'm in Jersey, I'm gonna hit you up. That would be great. That would be fun. Definitely- we'll
2: have Taylor Ham, egg, and cheese because you can't get oh. anywhere
1: else. Oh my god, dude! I'll take you to the best bagel place in Bloomfield. All right, bring it on! All right, dude, appreciate it, man. See you, brothers. Thank you.
2: Bye bye.
0: <laughs> Lab Coat Agents Podcast.